This evening we're going to read Hebrews chapter 7. The Apostle is in this chapter, in this book, in which he is setting forth Christ as the only mediator, and does that by comparing Christ to others that might be considered mediators like angels or Moses. In this chapter here, looks at the priesthood of Jesus and takes note that Jesus was not a priest after the order of Aaron. He was not a Levite, but he was from Judah and came in fulfillment of the psalm that he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And in the process, especially sets forth why Christ is the high priest, the perfect and only high priest. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law that is of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham, and blessed him that had the promises." And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, 
Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law, for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. We read that far in God's holy word. And this evening we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 30. And we'll use that as an applicatory service for the Lord's Supper Lord's Day 30, what difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which He Himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we by the Holy Ghost are engrafted into Christ, who according to His human nature is now not on earth, but in heaven at the right hand of God His Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. And further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them, so that the Mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ, and an accursed idolatry. For whom... Is the Lord's Supper instituted for those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy but hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. Are they also to be admitted to this supper who by confession in life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No. For by this the covenant of God would be profaned and His wrath kindled against the whole congregation. 
Therefore, it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have emphasized before that the sacraments teach the truth that God is holy and that holiness is one of the chief and prominent characteristics of God and therefore one of the chief and promised pro- chief and prominent characteristics of his people and of their life and so we speak of his children being holy his house being holy worship being holy, preaching being holy, the Scriptures being holy, and also then the sacraments. If you were paying attention, baptism was not simply called baptism, but holy baptism. And we have in our creeds also the Holy Supper. How many sacraments are there? Two. Holy baptism and the Holy Supper. They themselves are holy because God takes ordinary things, ordinary elements like water and wine and bread, and an ordinary minister in an ordinary building, and He uses all of that, He consecrates all of that for a means a means to impart grace, by which grace we who participate are made holy. That grace, when it's received, does something. And it's found even in the signs. The signs themselves are signs that we are consecrated to God, that is, holy unto God, and therefore are separated from sin and every other institution. That is what the sacraments set forth. That is the main idea also of this particular Lord's Day. There is a number of questions that are asked. First, about the difference between the Lord's Supper and the Mass, and it has to do with the testimony of them. Then the question is asked, for whom is the Supper instituted? That is, who does it benefit? Who is this grace of the Supper for? And then finally, it has to do with a participant who may participate, who may be there, who may eat and drink. And various answers are given. But the idea behind all those questions is that the supper is holy. And we're going to look at this Lord's Day according to the division of those questions, really, under that theme, the holiness of the supper. And in the first place, we're going to look at the holy testimony of the supper, what it says, what it shows by the very signs. And we're going to see that the signs show holiness. They're holy in their testimony. Secondly, 
that the benefit, the grace, also is holy. It's not a common grace. It's not a grace for everyone who happens to be there. But it's a grace that is particular. It is a sanctified grace. A grace only for some. Remember that. Particular grace has to do with the holiness of God. Then lastly, we look at the participant. May all come. Are all welcome at the table of the Lord? May anyone who just happens to show up be at the Lord's table. And again, the answer is no. It is a holy participation. So consider with me those three things, the holiness of the supper, the holy testimony, the holy benefit, and the holy participant. We begin with a truth that was set forth in the catechism very plainly to us, that we're dealing here with a sacrament, the sacrament of the Holy Supper. And sacraments essentially consist of visible signs of an invisible reality. So there's an invisible reality and the elements are visible signs. And exactly because they're visible signs, they say something. Though a word may not be said, like all signs, they're testifying to something. They're saying something. And so there's a testimony in the supper. That's what the catechism points out when it's asking or answering the question of the difference between the Lord's Supper and the Mass. And it's saying that both of them are purported to be sacraments. The Lord's Supper, of course, is a true sacrament, and the Mass is a man-made sacrament. But inasmuch as it claims to be a sacrament, it testifies to something as well as the Lord's Supper. And what does it testify? What is the testimony? And you'll notice that it's a particular testimony, a holy testimony. It sets forth a particular truth that is applied very particularly about God and about us. And what is it? The Lord's Supper testifies that we, not all men, have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which He Himself has once accomplished on the cross. So that, first of all, there's a testimony concerning the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It speaks clearly about that sacrifice. And what it says about that sacrifice is a few things. First of all, that it's an atoning sacrifice. The Lord's Supper testifies that a sacrifice was made. It was made by our Lord Jesus Christ. And that sacrifice atoned. It was not a thank offering. It was not a sacrifice made simply to thank God for something, as is one kind of sacrifice. But it was an atonement and a burnt sacrifice. So it testifies that when Christ gave His life by the shedding of His blood, He paid for something. He paid the penalty of sin. Paid the penalty of our sin, as we're going to see. But by the shedding of His blood and giving Himself to the fire of God's wrath, 
He atoned. The Lord's Supper is also a testimony that that sacrifice was necessary to make. It was a testimony of our need to make such a sacrifice. Because when one comes to the supper, then in that supper, in that testimony, is the testimony that you are a sinner, and I am a sinner, and we all are sinners, and therefore we all are subject to the very wrath of God that shed the blood and consumed our Lord Jesus Christ. That same wrath is what we deserve. That same wrath of God is what we ought to pay for our sin. It's a testimony of that. And therefore, what also then follows is that it is a substitutionary sacrifice. Even the Old Testament sacrifices testified of that. All the children of Israel understood that the sacrifices, especially the atoning sacrifices, the burnt sacrifices, the sin offerings, that they were doing that to animals as a substitute for what they deserved. And among the many things the Apostle Paul has to teach in the book of Hebrews is that obviously didn't do that. All the sacrificing by all the priests of all those animals of every kind over and over again never paid for one sin. Didn't pay for the sins of the priests who made them for themselves. Didn't pay for the sins of the people which sacrifices they made after the ones for themselves. But Christ's sacrifice testifies that it was a substitution. How so? Because the blood that is shed, the body that is broken, is that of a perfect man, a sinless man, and a perfect and sinless man who didn't deserve death himself personally. And therefore, if his blood is shed and his body is broken in death, one of two things must be true. Either God is unjust... For death, you see, is the wages of sin. God cannot kill, if he's a righteous God, a righteous man. God does not destroy the righteous. He does not kill the righteous. But it's a testimony that Christ is dead. His blood has been shed. His blood has been shed regardless of all the instruments and tools that are used by God himself. Now is God unrighteous? And the answer is no. Well, what then? And how then, if Christ himself is perfect and sinless? And the answer is, it was a substitution. He gave his life for ours. The blood he shed and the body that he gave to the breaking was instead of ours and in our place. It's a testimony of all that. It's a testimony also that it was a complete sacrifice. That's one of the things that is made here in the book of Hebrews chapter 7 and elsewhere too in the book of Hebrews. It was a complete sacrifice. There was nothing lacking, nothing missing. It wasn't like the sacrifices in the Old Testament which were incomplete and missing something. Namely, they were all animal sacrifices. 
God was making clear in all those sacrifices, not one of them really was acceptable at all. Not to him. Not even when he demanded him. They couldn't pay for one single sin. Why? Because they were animals. God will not atone the sin, forgive the sin of man made by a sacrifice of that which did not sin. Namely, an animal. Then there's the fact that we couldn't make such a sacrifice ourselves. That's part of the necessity. You and I could not make such a sacrifice. Could not make such a sacrifice exactly because not one of us can sustain the wrath of God without dying. And if we're dead, we're dead. Not only that, but how can we pay for our sins with a life that's sinned against God? That's not true of Christ. And so when He gave His life, He could accomplish there on the cross what no human could do, not even a million humans could do. Completely exhaust the wrath of God. When we say, and the Supper testifies of that, it's testifying that Jesus so satisfied, so paid the penalty, that all the justice of God was satisfied. His righteousness was not impugned at all. And God said, that's enough. It's finished. It's over. The debt has been paid. The penalty has been meted out. And so there's no more wrath of God to be satisfied for sin. Complete in that, it covered every sin. Didn't just cover the sins of those for whom he died who had gone before. The sins of Adam and the sins of Moses, the sins of David, the sins of Abraham, but the sins of all his children who even would be born long after he paid that sacrifice. And the supper testifies to that. Every child of God who's born and brought into the world and brought before the testimony sees that. It's blood that was shed and a body that was broken. And it's still benefiting the people of God every time they partake. Now the supper's testimony in that regard is completely different. And you have to understand why. Because Rome teaches that the Mass itself is a sacrifice. That's what our catechism charges, that it's a sacrifice. It's another sacrifice of Christ. And therefore it testifies the complete opposite thing. Now, you have to understand Rome denies that. And there are Reformed churches who have bought that denial of Rome foolishly without examining Rome's own teachings and thus have relegated question and answer 80 to nothing more than a footnote and a wrong one at that, saying our fathers were wrong, but no, they were right. You could test that too, by the way. If you know practicing Roman Catholics, you worked with them or talked with them, some are even in our churches, you can ask them, how did they consider the Mass? What did they consider the Mass to be? And they'll all tell you, it was a sacrifice. We went to see Christ sacrificed again. So Rome is lying. You can check their catechism out too. 
Rome itself says in its own catechism, and I quote, it is a sacrificial memorial. It is a sacrifice that represents and makes the present sacrifice of the cross present. It is the same sacrifice as that of Christ on the cross, only the manner is different. And there's a reason why the clergy is not called ministers but priests, and the table is called an altar. Come on. Rome knows full well what the Mass is and what it testifies, and the very fact that it's a sacrifice testifies that the one sacrifice of Christ really wasn't enough. More sacrifices have to be made. There's no benefit to the people unless more sacrifices are made. It's a testimony that the sacrifice of Christ really didn't atone. It wasn't complete. It wasn't substitutionary. That the people in one way or another have to do things in order to be forgiven their sins. They're not forgiven in Christ and through Christ alone. Now there's other things that are being testified in the supper that we ought not overlook since we brought up the issue of priests, which is that the supper testifies not only that Christ was the perfect sacrifice, but he was the perfect priest, which is one reason why we read Hebrews 7 and why I will be somewhat brief on this. We tend to overlook this, but Jesus was not simply the lamb that was slaughtered, but he was the perfect priest who brought the perfect sacrifice. Only the perfect priest knows the perfect sacrifice. It was himself, of course, but don't ever look that. It's one of the points the apostle is making when he calls him really the only high priest, the only one who really could serve God in that capacity. It's a testimony that Jesus himself was sovereign over his own death. Jesus emphasized that over and over again, that he gave himself to death willingly. And when we partake of the supper, we remember that. The blood that was shed and the body that was broken wasn't shed and broken simply because he was taken apart from his will, with him resisting and fighting and screaming the whole way to the cross. But time and time again, he showed, I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. I'm here because this is the will of my Father who sent me. I'm here because I'm obedient unto my Father, even unto death. I'm here because I've humbled myself, coming down from my place in heaven to this earth in your flesh to suffer and to die. It's worth noting that because it's that which continues. If we look at Christ and his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, there is an aspect of his work of priest that is done. Even as there's a work, there's an aspect of his work as prophet that's done. He preached on this earth. He doesn't do that anymore in the way that he did before. He's not bodily on the earth preaching and teaching as he was. Still preaches and teaches, though. But so also with priesthood. He's not done being priest. 
Even though he made the sacrifice once, even though it's complete, even though it's finished, he continues to be priest. He maketh continual intercession for us, we read in our creeds. Continual intercession. He makes prayers. He comes to his Father. He pleads on our behalf. He listens to our prayers. He answers them. And all of it on the basis of that sacrifice. That's something that's often forgotten. That every interaction that we have with God is through Him as priest. This is where the whole subject of Him being mediator comes in. The mediatorship is especially an aspect of His priestly office. And so... He continues to function in that way over and over and again and again. It's that which really forgives our sins, the sins that we continue to commit, even the sins that we commit as we're praying and we come to God, sometimes foolishly, and forgives our sins as we partake of the supper. You see... When God forgives our sins, the idea isn't that for the first time now God forgives our sins, but He's already forgiven our sins. And exactly because Christ is our continual intercessor and makes continual intercession, there is a word from God that continues to come to us over and over again in our soul, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. That's not due to a deficiency in the sacrifice due to a deficiency in ourselves. It's due to our sin, our continued sin. And so that too is being testified in the supper, which though the sacrifice is not repeated, the testimony of the need for the forgiveness of sins is. Always remember that. The need for the forgiveness of sins is not that they're not forgiven. That's happened already. The need is that we know and we believe because we forget And we're tempted to ignore or have unbelief with regard to that forgiveness. It has to do with what we receive and know in our own soul and conscience, not the reality of it. Now, there's also a testimony with regard to the benefit. And that testimony is the benefit of the Lord's Supper also is holy. And that's brought up when the Catechism asks, for whom is it instituted? Is it for everyone? Now, one could easily answer the question and say, no, can't be, from the obvious fact that not everyone's gathered at the table, not everyone comes to church to partake. But is it even for everyone who shows up? Is it a benefit for everyone who drinks the wine and eats the bread? You see, there's a testimony about that too. And the Catechism answers that question and says, no, the benefit is holy. The sign is holy. The testimony is holy. So the benefit is holy. It has to be. Catechism says it's not for two people. First, hypocrites. Hypocrites, and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, 
don't eat and drink Christ. They don't eat and drink grace. They don't eat and drink the forgiveness of sins. What they eat and drink is judgment to themselves. You have to understand what it's talking about. Again, I remind you, it's not talking about the individual who doesn't partake. It's talking about the individual who partakes, who eats and he drinks, but he's a hypocrite, or who does not turn to God with sincere heart. We're going to see that that's somebody who doesn't repent. When they eat and drink, their sins are not forgiven. When they didn't drink, they do not hear the Word of God. Their sins are forgiven. They do not receive the grace of God. They do receive something. And they receive that something by very very virtue of the fact that they eat and drink that which is a sign. I tend to forget that. We need to do justice to that. That there is an individual who can come and sit in the pew and as the wine's going by, take it, drinks along with everybody else and eats the bread along with everybody else and may fool themselves and think to themselves, maybe we even think it, well, he's not really getting anything. Oh no, he's getting something. He's receiving something. He's receiving a testimony. The Lord is speaking loudly. What does he receive? The judgment of God. How so? Well, look what he's eating and drinking. He's not eating and drinking wine and bread. He's eating wine as a sacrament of the shed blood of Christ. And he's eating bread, which is a visible sign and a sacrament of the broken body of Jesus Christ. And he's eating it and drinking it. In other words, he who receives that judgment receives that judgment because he rejects the very thing that he needs. He's partaking of it. And there in that sign itself is what he deserves. It's a testimony of what he needs, what he deserves, what he ought to have. But exactly because he's a hypocrite and doesn't turn to God, he doesn't receive the benefit of that. Now you have to understand why that is. Why is that? Well, no, number one, you have to turn to the hypocrite. It talks about the hypocrite. You've got to understand what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is not somebody who lives a life that is immoral and wicked, that no one knows about. That's not usually the case. Look at two famous hypocrites in Scripture, King Saul and Judas Iscariot. Now, there were very few people that could come to either of those men and charge them with being wicked, of living wicked and profane lives. If you had looked at either of them, you would see that they lived outwardly moral lives. They didn't appear to be thieves or corrupt, unvirtuous in any way. So that's not the idea of a hypocrite. That's often what we think a hypocrite is. No, a hypocrite is one who, if you look at, you say, well, that's an outstanding Christian there. But that's also what the hypocrite says about himself. There's really three things that identify a hypocrite. Number one, the hypocrite will not admit he's a damn worthy sinner. He'll admit he's a sinner. He'll admit he's a sinner like everybody else. He'll admit even that his sins deserve something. But he will not admit that he deserves to go to hell. 
If you call the hypocrite out for his sins, then his response usually is, well, I'm not as bad as others. I'm not as bad as I could be. I'm not as bad as I often thought I could be. So the first is that he doesn't consider himself to be a damn worthy sinner as his sins deserve, as they are before God. Number two, and closely related to that, the hypocrite considers his outward walk of life that which makes him worthy of God's benefits. That's what makes him worthy to partake of the Lord's table. That's what makes him worthy to eat and drink that body and blood. It's what makes him worthy of heaven, of God's grace and God's favor. That's usually what he brings up too when you bring up his sin. Not only is he not a damn worthy sinner, but the good things that he does make up for the bad things that he do does. I'm not really a thief. I have thought about it. Perhaps I've even engaged in it. But I also give a lot of money to the church. That kind of wipes out the other. So that's the second sign. He usually points to his outwardly moral life and considers that which makes him worthy before God. And then, and then the third thing that characterizes the hypocrite is that he will never acknowledge that he's a hypocrite. In his own eyes, he's exactly what God wants him to be. Oh, yes, God demands a lot of things, but I am those things. In other words, you won't find in the hypocrite this sighing, this sorrow over sin. There may be an acknowledgement of it, but overall, I'm exactly what God wants me to be. I'm as sanctified as I'm supposed to be. That's a hypocrite. And you understand that's closely related to the second class of people that are not benefited by the Lord's Supper, which is those who do not turn to God with sincere hearts. There's a relationship there. Now I suspect the catechism has in mind now not the hypocrite, but that does characterize the hypocrite. If now the hypocrite is not a damn worthy sinner and considers his own outwardly moral life, that which makes him worthy for the supper... If he considers that he is right in his own eyes and just what God wants him to be, then he's not going to turn to God, is he? He doesn't need God. Doesn't need Christ, really. May need to come here and participate because, well, otherwise people will know I'm a hypocrite. Otherwise, people might identify me as somebody who really doesn't need Christ. But in his mind, that's really the way it is. But the Catechism is talking really about anyone who will not turn to Christ, say to themselves, well, I have no need to do that, and so I don't even come to church, not even a member of the church. So you have to understand why that is. Is it this, that God is sitting there waiting for individuals to do certain things? to turn to Him, to repent, to stop being a hypocrite, and then God says, well, now I forgive your sins. No, that would make all such activities a condition to God forgiving our sins. No, it doesn't work like that way at all. You've you got to understand, if you're a member of Christ, even if you're a hypocrite, by the way, it's possible. Hypocrites can repent. People who didn't turn to God can turn to God. And if they do, their sins are forgiven. They always were forgiven. 
But what's the issue? Well, you understand that if you don't have any sin, you don't need forgiveness. The cross, the sacrifice, the Lord's Supper is all about forgiveness. It testifies that those who participate with a true and living faith receive that forgiveness. They receive that benefit. It's theirs. God has forgiven their sins. But if you don't have any sin, there's no benefit. There's nothing there. It's what Jesus meant when He said, you understand, it's only the sick that need a physician. Those who are not sick don't need a physician. They don't go to the doctor. They don't need the doctor. That's the idea. But it is actually worse than that. They receive judgment. They eat and drink judgment to themselves. It explains why sometimes when they're hypocrite in the church, or we can walk in sin for a long time, and even if that person or individual is a child of God, why it is, from all human viewpoints, impossible for them to repent. Because their heart has been so hardened by these judgments of God, because they lived in sin, they've lived as a hypocrite in the church, and they've come to the table and they partake. And they eat and drink judgment to themselves every time they do that. That's the, that's the horror of it. That's the horror of it. Now who does it benefit? It benefits, we may say, in one word, those who are truly sorrowful for their sins. That is, those who repent. It benefits those who by a true faith, and only those who by a true faith believe that sacrifice of Jesus Christ is for themselves. That should make sense. We just got done explaining how do you eat and drink? How is it that when you drink wine and eat bread, that wine and that bread is the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ? And the answer is by faith. By faith now, not in the thing, faith in the sign, but faith in the reality. Faith was characterized as the hand and mouth of the soul, specifically with regard to the Lord's table. In the Belgian Confession, we pointed that out. So wouldn't it make sense then that the supper benefits only someone who participates by faith? And that, you see, is the role and place of repentance. This is exactly where the self-examination comes in. We're going to look at that in just a little bit more detail but right now, and you know those three things, and this is really what the Heidelberg Catechism is pointing out when it talks about who the supper benefits. Listen, for whom is the supper instituted? That's like asking the question, for, who, for whom is the supper given beneficially? Who did Christ give his broken body and shed blood for? Who, who receives that and receives it with grace? Answer. For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins. And yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ. And that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death. Now you recognize those, right? That, that could as well be a quote 
of the two parts of the form for self-examination. Number one and number two. Oh, it goes on. And who earnestly desires to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. There's the third one. There they are. The very same, very three things that are in our own form for the Lord's Supper that we're going to read in just a little bit are said right here. Now, if you want to summarize them, they may be summarized as repentance. Repentance. When you examine yourself, the examination really is an examination of this. Are you repentant or not? Now, it's under, important to understand what that is and how that's done. We're going to see that too when we read the form. It'll emphasize what I'm saying now. And it's something I have to point out. Repentance is not a good work. I say that because a minister recently wrote that publicly in a magazine minister who condemns us for false doctrine said repentance is your work it's what you do it's a good work now number one I don't think Arminians were ever that bold I don't think there was ever an Arminian that ever said that but just think about it think about how horrible that is that the very requirement to the Lord's table is a good work. The call of the gospel is turned to do a good work and believe. Is that what the catechism sets forth here as the beneficiary of the Lord's table? Is that who it benefits? Because I'm telling you, this is talking about repentance. You may take all those words and pull them out and insert the word repentance. Who is the Lord's Supper instituted for? Answer, those who are repentant. That's what it means. And that now is the requirement. The supper benefits those who do good works. That's horrible. How many? How often? No, it's for sinners. Repentant sinners. Not all sinners. Repentant sinners. Unrepentant sinners don't have their sins forgiven. God does not forgive the sins of all mankind. God forgives the sins of those who are repentant. Now, if you ask what repentance is and how it works, it's very simple. It's an aspect of faith. It's what faith believes. In fact, that's that's going to be pointed out in the form for the Lord's Supper. Look very carefully at those questions. Look very carefully at what's pointed out here. And all of it has to do with what you believe. What is it to be truly sorrowful for your sins? It's to believe that your sin is sin. It's to believe by faith that your sin is sin. That's what it is. What is it to trust that those sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ? What is that trust? It's the trust of faith. What is it to trust that your remaining infirmities are covered by His passion? It's faith. Where does even the, the earnest desire to have our faith more and more strengthened come from? <laughs> where, where does the earnest desire to have your faith strengthened come from? From faith itself. It comes from faith itself. Where is there the desire to live more holy? It's faith. It comes from faith. The hypocrite is one who doesn't have faith. Someone who does not sincerely turn to God is one who does not have faith. 
That's who it benefits. And it ought to make sense. Because that's how you eat and drink, by faith. That's not a good work. You don't eat and drink by good works. You eat and drink by faith. What despair, what assurance would there be if repentance is a good work? Now, participation. It's exactly because the testimony is holy, the supper is holy, and the benefit is holy, that participation is also holy. It's why our churches practice what we do with regard to participation. We don't allow anyone who just visits to participate. That practice is very strong, almost universal in churches today. But it belies the fact that the supper is holy. Now, that's the idea behind examination. We have to understand that there's two ways that we recognize that participation is holy. The first is self-examination. If you ask one of the reasons of self-examination, it is to guard the table. It has to do with eating and drinking worthily, that is, not eating and drinking, judgment to ourselves. So we conduct self-examination. Now, it ought to be rare, I'll say that, that a child of God, after conducting self-examination, says, I ought not participate. Because if he's truly examined himself, and he's truly answered these questions that way, yes, I'm truly sorry for my sin, I believe my sin's forgiven, then he ought to participate. It's not right. It's not good. It's not normal when people absent themselves from the table of the Lord. Now what maybe they ought to do instead of that is to apologize to people they've sinned against, maybe even apologize to the church. But absenting yourself from the table of the Lord ought to be extremely rare if you've indeed examined yourself. If you, be, if you find within yourself by faith these things that faith believes. But there's another way too. And this is really the main way. And this is why this Lord's Day leads to the one that follows, which is the keys of the kingdom. We're going to be brief, therefore, with regard to them. The Lord gives the elders the judgment to make in this regard. The elders are called to put out of its membership, even, those who live wicked and unholy lives. They don't do that to sinners. They do that to those who walk in sin. Those who are not repentant of their sin, who are not sorrowful for their sin, who do not manifest the very three things that are in the Lord's table, or in the form for the Lord's Supper, or that are found here. Elders, by the way, that are doing discipline and working on discipline could go right here to look at this with regard to their judgments and decisions that they make, as well as the Lord's table. It's why the first step of discipline is to bar someone, not from the church, but from the Lord's table. Doesn't that strike you as strange? Doesn't that strike you as almost silly from an earthly viewpoint? Think about it. There's sin and there's sinners in the church. There's hypocrites and those who don't repent. What are we going to do with them? Well, we're going to tell them they can't partake of the Lord's table. And you, from an out viewpoint, you say to yourself, well, what good is that going to do? 
They don't care about God. They don't care about Jesus. What's, what, good, what good does that do? Now you understand that's done for a reason. There's a reason why that is a mark of the true church. Remember that. That's, that's the third mark of the true church when that's done. And that's not done as punishment. It's done for a lot of reasons. It's done to protect the holiness of the church. Because if sin unchecked, little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. But even more than that, if that is allowed, if individuals, known sinners, either by the elders of the congregation, are allowed to participate, God's judgment comes upon the whole congregation. That's what he says. His wrath comes upon the whole congregation. A lot made lately about corporate responsibility and what a church believes and what it teaches and who's responsible for what. You, you understand it begins here. This is where real corporate responsibility begins. Right at the Lord's table. It's because it says something about Christ. It's an offense to Christ. It's blasphemous against His body and blood. And it's even to protect an individual from the judgment they would otherwise consume. But the purpose of that, which is amazing, really, is exactly because the sacrifice of Christ has already paid for our sins, that there's still hope for that sinner. Even though that sinner may have partaken for years at the Lord's table, hiding gross, gross sin so that their heart is as hard as a rock. Denying them the table, if they're a child of God, will be intolerable at some point. God, who has forgiven their sins a long time ago, will wake them by His Spirit. They will be hungry and thirsty and say to themselves, You know what I need? I don't need more money and more women and more booze and more drugs. What I need is right there at the table. That's what I need. So, beloved, everything about the supper is holy. And let's keep it holy. Amen. Let's turn now to the form, and let's just read those questions and answers, and then we'll pray. Notice that the form says that to celebrate to our comfort, there's two things necessary. Notice, necessary for our comfort. That's the emphasis. We examine ourselves is the first. And the second is has to do with understanding to direct it to that end. But we consider the examination of ourselves first. But, but notice, the emphasis is on comfort, assurance, faith. Look at the three things. True examination of ourselves consists of these three parts. First, that everyone consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them, to the end that he may abhor and humble himself before God. That's repentance. And you have to ask yourself, how does one consider that? What is that consideration made with? And the answer is faith. Consider again, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that rather than it should go unpunished, He hath punished the same in His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. So the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Examine yourself this week. Just ask yourself that. Do I believe that? Do I believe it's about my sin and the curse due to them and the wrath of God?
Number two, secondly, that everyone examine his own heart. Look in your own heart. And what? Whether he doth believe. So it's an examination by faith of faith. That everyone examine his own heart whether he doth believe this faithful promise of God that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given him as his own yea so perfectly as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins and fulfilled all righteousness the question is do you believe that? that you have to ask yourself this week do I believe that? that's examination that's repentance thirdly even this that everyone examine his own conscience, whether he purposeth henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life and to walk uprightly before him. Notice, the question is not even do you do that, but are you purposed to do that? Do you desire to do that? As also whether he hath laid aside faintly all enmity, hatred, and envy, and doth firmly resolve henceforth to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor, all those then who are thus disposed, God will certainly receive in mercy and count them worthy partakers of the table of His Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not feel this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. Let's now pray. Lord our God and Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word, the truth of the Holy Sacrament, the truth of what is testified of the great benefit and participation. Give us grace to examine ourselves rightly by faith in this coming week that we may truly receive with our hearts, the hearts of faith, the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.